So Matthew chapter 20, we launch into 20, and uh, I feel like we're in the home stretch. Um, we'll end in the 20s, so after almost three years, uh, we, are, we are nearing the end of Matthew's record of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has turned the corner in the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, he's turned the corner literally in direction, and he's heading towards Jerusalem. So we're in the final phase. This will be the final trip to Jerusalem. He will go. The triumphal entry will take place. And then you know the Passion Week basically will unfold. And time will slow down at the end of Matthew's record. For now, he's covering large amounts of time with themes and developing them and making very clear statements about the Messianic ministry and the prophetic fulfillment that is Jesus Christ. But time will slow down as we get further into this concluding section as uh, we'll go from weeks and months down to days and then from days down to moments um, as we finish the life of Christ and glory in the cross that is coming in Jerusalem. But for today, we are still ministering with Jesus, watching him minister to the 12 disciples. And we're going to study the first half of this chapter next Sunday, Lord willing. We'll study the second half of chapter 20. And then we're going to break for the month of August. We're going to do some study in the Psalms. We're calling that Summer in the Psalms. And uh, we'll study the first four Psalms in our Psalter. And I trust that God will use that to refresh our hearts. And uh, it will bring us back to um, the triumphal entry in Matthew with uh, some freshness and vitality, I trust, in September. Okay? So let's read together these verses for our consideration this morning. Let's begin back in chapter 19 and verse 23. Quite a few verses to read, but it, I think it's meaningful for the context. So let's read chapter 19, verse 23, and then we'll read through verse 16 of chapter 20. Matthew says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will we get? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, 
they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And these are the words of God for our study time this morning. Let's pray and ask God for help as we give our attention to his word. Father, thank you for the privilege that's ours. To have your very words preserved for us, to have the gift of having them in our language. And for the freedom that we now enjoy as we come to study these words. We do enjoy freedom in the sense of a national freedom that allows us to do this without fear. But we come as your people, we come with a freedom that is unknown to those outside of Christ. We come with the aid of the Holy Spirit who is with us in the absence of our Savior, who guides us in the truth, who sanctifies us in the truth, who shapes and molds us, who convicts us, who comforts us, who directs us. And so we lean upon your Spirit, and we ask that your Spirit would be active and working now as we study in all of us. I ask for help, that there would be clarity in, in, in the presentation of your Word, that there would be no distraction or confusion, That your spirit would clear the way for us to understand fully what you intend from these verses this morning. And I pray for your spirit's power for those receiving. That they would receive not with quickness to talk, but with slowness to talk and slowness to anger. Being quick to hear you and in hearing you, considering how they might become doers of your word. So shape us all, mold us as we study so that we might bear your likeness more fully in this week to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the big question that faces us every single day of our lives is faced in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 20. And we've faced this question over and over and over and over again in our study of the the ministry life and the instruction of Jesus both as we have watched him and as we have listened to him teach, we have been faced with the question of where will our information come from? Where will our allegiance be drawn? Will we believe what our culture says about any number of scenarios or will we view them through the perspective of the kingdom as translated to us through the king? This is the dilemma that we face in every facet of our lives. Will we follow our own wisdom, or the wisdom of the world around us, or will we follow and pursue and live in the wisdom of Christ and of His kingdom? So for our time this morning, the questions we should bring to the table are, will I live the doctrine of my culture, or will I live the doctrine of my king? Will I interpret my life through the lens of the word, or through the lens of the world? In in which way? Will I believe what I can see or will I walk by faith, believing what I cannot see? Will I trust that this is, in fact, the word of God, authoritative and binding upon my life as a child of God, if, in fact, you're here and in Christ? 
So this morning we have we have a real privilege and we've said that repeatedly and it's true and it's pressing upon me even as we prepare to study these verses that it's our privilege to have our minds renewed. We are not left to wonder what God thinks about any number of situations in our life. We have the word of God, which has supplied everything we need for life and godliness. And verses one through 16 of Matthew chapter 20 provide for us yet another layer in the perspective lens that we must live with as kingdom citizens. Let's let's engage with what's here as familiar as it may be or potentially as confusing as the story may be because of the distance in culture. Let's engage with the reality that Jesus is speaking directly to us through the word this morning. There is one overarching theme that will be the the umbrella over our text this morning. And and if you're note taking and I trust that you are and learning to and growing into that. That you'll mark this big idea. Sovereign grace is the equalizer of the kingdom. Sovereign grace is the equalizer of the kingdom. Jesus has already spoken in chapter 19 to the Apostle Peter, which will set up our study this morning. And he concluded in verse number 30 with, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And obviously, because you were reading along with me, you know that verse 16 ends with the flipped around version of the same thought. So in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And so Jesus clearly is is bracketing his discussion in verses 1 through 15 with these two primary themes. And I believe what will come from verses 1 through 15 as the overarching idea theme The big thought this morning is that sovereign grace is the great equalizer of the kingdom. So we haven't been in a parable since chapter 13 that is this in depth. We haven't had an opportunity like this for a while. And I love the parables. These are one of the the sweetest parts of the scriptures to me as we get to engage with Jesus at his finest in teaching. Using commonplace um, real life illustrations to make clear spiritual truths and to hide them from those who would not have eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to split this up very simply in the outline. I trust we'll point back to that big idea. So sovereign grace is the equalizer of the kingdom. And we'll see that as we examine verses one through 16 with this simple outline. We'll see the problem. Then we'll look at the parable and then we'll see the point. So obviously the problem and the parable are leading us to the point, And the point is captured in the big idea. Okay, sovereign grace is the great equalizer of the kingdom of heaven. The problem, the problem that sets up this parable is somewhat clouded for us by a chapter break. I don't know if you're aware that your chapter markers and your verse markers are not inspired. That's not a part of the original documents of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Those are added later to help bring division. In fact, We can be thankful that they're here. They serve us because in its original writing, the New Testament was one large string of letters together. In fact, they had to find breaks in the words. I've seen old manuscripts of the New Testament. It's in all caps and it's all strung together with no punctuation involved or no breaks in paragraphs. It's fascinating. But we are we are experiencing a disservice here in chapter 20 verse 1 because really this is not the place for a chapter break a chapter break would lead you to think we're getting into a new thought but we're not we're actually continuing a discussion that has begun 
back in verse number 23 of chapter 19. And there Jesus says, rich people have a hard time getting into the kingdom. Like camels going through eyes of needles. And the disciples respond with an, an astonished, who in the world can be saved then? And, and no doubt they're looking at each other. Matthew is a tax collector. He certainly has a, an element of wealth within his culture. And he's the one recording this. Who can be saved if rich people have such dramatic difficulty entering the kingdom? And Jesus responds with, I trust what is famous in all the right ways. His response is that with God, it's impossible. It's not just hard to believe. It's impossible to believe. But, 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 but with God, what is impossible is set over in this new category and is made possible. So with man, there is no possibility of altering the inside. There is no way to create a scenario that makes it easy to get into the kingdom. But with God, it is all possible. Well, Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, will trust as the leader among equals with the foot-shaped mouth that Peter has, immediately recognizes that they have given up much. They have been brought into the kingdom as something of wealthy people. And Peter, at least, would be willing to say, I've given up a lot. So if I've given up a lot, no doubt in the kingdom, that's going to correlate to getting a lot. So I've left everything behind. So what exactly is coming to me is the question that Peter asks. And Jesus, in, in his grace and mercy, does not strongly rebuke Peter in the end of chapter 19. He does rebuke him, but he doesn't he doesn't call Peter out as he would at other times. We already studied in chapter 16 where he he referenced Peter as the embodiment of Satan. Here he doesn't do that, but he does highlight the problem that leads to the parable. So he says, "You will receive much. You will rule in the kingdom to come when I sit on the throne, the glorious throne that is to come." When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth. When he'll reign in the eternal Jerusalem on his eternal throne, the throne of David. Forever preserved for him. When that takes place, you twelve will rule with me. But then Jesus concludes his answer with verse number 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And it's here that we have this unfortunate chapter break. Because the next word in chapter 20, verse 1, connects us back to that last phrase in verse number 30. We see this little tiny word, for. And all Jesus is going to do now is explain the problem that's been created by the kingdom paradox. So what is the kingdom paradox? In the kingdom, the reward system will be flipping around roles in this life. First, last, last, first. Equality. There will be a whole new system within the kingdom of heaven. And no doubt when Jesus said the axiom that is so familiar in some senses to us as Christians in verse number 30, it was met with confusion on the part of the disciples. What exactly does he mean by this? And how will first, last, last, first get played out within the kingdom of heaven? What will that look like? How will we know what that means to us as followers of Christ? And so beginning with verse number one of chapter 20, we have his explanation. And Jesus uses a parable to clarify the paradox that he's given. So the problem is wrapped up in the discussion between Peter and Jesus. How exactly will the first be made last and the last be made first in the kingdom? If the kingdom was mirrored in real life, Jesus says, 
this story would be what it's going to look like. Now, there's a caution for us, no doubt, when we come to parables. We haven't been there for a while, so let me remind you that a parable is a, is a true-to-life story for the purpose of driving home a point. Now, at times, there are secondary principles that could come from a parable, but the parable's, the parable's intention is to, to make a distinct point. And so our job this morning is not to connect all the dots. You remember that game? Uh, I'm back into that game because we go to restaurants, and at restaurants they give us the mat with the crayons for Carissa, and we play connect the dots, and that's I'm back in. We don't need to connect the dots this morning with the parable. We don't have to draw out every, every facet of the story and connect it to something spiritual within the story. Okay? What we need to see is the whole of the story as a true-to-life, made-up, make-believe story that points to a truth. And in this case, clarifies for us the paradox of last, first, first, last. So Jesus intends for this to make the, the, the reality of verse number 30 clear to the disciples and indirectly to make it clear for us as well. So remember this morning, our job is not to untie all the knots of the story in the parable, but to see the story, to understand the story, and then to glean from the story the clarity that Jesus intends in relation to the problem that he's answering. So we have a problem, which is that paradoxical statement, and now we have a parable that opens up that statement and clarifies for us that statement made by Christ. So the problem and the parable will lead us to the conclusion that sovereign grace is the great equalizer of the kingdom. Right? So let's move from the problem then to the parable. Let's look at the actual story. There is one major truth that comes from this account, and it is that sovereign grace equalizes the kingdom, and we notice it through the details of this story. Pretty simple, actually. This is an ag story. So as much of a cultural disconnect as there is, there's also a lot of cultural connection for uh, our culture here, our society within the Central Valley. Basic story, we have a man who owns a vineyard. He gets up early in the morning. You should know that early in the morning and the work day began at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. That's critical to our understanding of the way these events will unfold in the story. So 6 a.m. workday begins, but before that 6 a.m. workday begins, the man rises and goes into the marketplace, and he finds day laborers for that day to go into his vineyard and to pick the fruit. Some of you probably are familiar with that, a lot familiar with that. When we lived in Southern California, there were day laborers who would gather at different places. I can remember going to Home Depot on a Saturday morning. And there would be large groups of people at Home Depot on Saturday morning who had no intention of buying goods from Home Depot. They had every intention of working for the ones who were buying the goods from Home Depot. And would actually come to your car if you came out with two-by-fours on your shoulder, loaded them into your truck. You would be met by some greeters who didn't have on orange aprons who said, let me help you. What are you doing? I can work. Can I work for you today? I can remember on the corner of our street where our apartment was, um, I can remember driving in. We had just moved to Los Angeles. Renee and I moved across the country with everything we owned inside of our Hyundai Elantra. So you can get the feel for our furniture situation. We had very, we had nothing, okay? We had nothing. Um, we had nothing, and God provided everything. We, 
We, within a week of getting our apartment, a family left for India to the mission field and left all of their furniture in a garage and told the family, find somebody who needs this furniture and give it to them. So I remember driving back down our street with a little U-Haul truck that I rented for that day for $20. And I remember crying on the way back and driving into the the street. And there was a group of guys that were like bum rushing my U-Haul truck because they were eager to be day workers. They wanted to get a wage. They ran towards the truck. They were asking, clamoring, can we help you? Can we help you? This was commonplace. This was normal. And Jesus associates with these individuals. Jesus is very much connected to the blue-collar, day-laboring crowd of people who are around him. And so he uses this picture, which would be a pointed and very realistic picture for them. Early in the morning, day-laborers are picked up, and they're sent into that vineyard to work. And this man will pay them a daily wage. A denarius is simply the, the day wage for that time period detail of how much they got or even how long they were there is really subservient to the concept of getting laborers and adding laborers to his his vineyard work so notice verse three about the third hour he saw others standing idle in the marketplace this man was you know he was uh, a go-getter he was on that chariot a lot that day he's back in the marketplace third hour so we are now at 9 a.m At 9 a.m., he finds more individuals standing in the marketplace. He picks them up and hires them and says, get into my vineyard. I need help, and I'll pay you what you have coming to you. Whatever is right, verse 4 says. He goes out again at noon, and he goes out again at 3 p.m. And both times he goes into the market, noon and 3 p.m., he finds other people, and he he requests them to come and serve in his vineyard. He did the same, verse 5 says. In verse 6, at the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m. At 5 p.m., the workday ends at 6, he went out and found others standing, and it's a kind of an interesting conversation that Jesus creates here. He says to him, why do you stand here idle all day? Um, it's hard to read tone into the record of Scripture. Um, and usually we just read our own personalities into the sections where we don't know what the tone is, but I can sense the tone of his voice. Maybe a hint of sarcasm, but a gleam in his eye because he's found these guys at 5 p.m. still hanging out in the marketplace, talking to each other, being idle. They said to him, because no one has hired us, we would willingly work, but no one's picked us up. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Okay, so the, the parable is not difficult for us to get at the basic level of details. The pop of this parable is what comes next. So this part of the story, it's almost as if you can see the crowd of people who are listening to Jesus and they they've heard him say the last will be first, the first will be last. And he says, for let me explain that the kingdom of heaven is like this master who goes out early in the morning and he picks up workers and they work in his vineyard and they're going, "Okay, that makes sense. Got it. So how does that fit into this story? Oh, and at the third hour, he went and got more. Oh, wow. He must have had a lot to do. And at the sixth hour, he went and got more. And at the ninth hour, he went and got ninth hour. I mean, come on. I mean, how this is getting late. At the eleventh hour, he went out and hired more. But that might just be mildly confusing in correlation to how shocking the next part of this story would be to the hearers. Because one hour after getting those final workers, verse number nine says, or verse number eight, rather, and when the evening came, 
the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. All right, that makes sense. These guys have only been here an hour. Just get those guys. They're probably close by. Let's pay them first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, here's where you can feel the the wave of Jesus' story hitting the multitude of people. There's no doubt a crowd around him. The disciples are shocked. They got a denarius? They were only there for an hour. I mean, they didn't do hardly anything. I mean, how many grapes can you pick in an hour? It's not a rhetorical question. I don't know how many grapes can be picked in an hour. And I'm sure somebody in this room does know. But they hadn't picked as many as those poor individuals who've been out there for 12 hours. And that's exactly the shock that Jesus intended. And when those hired first, verse 10 says, came, they thought they would receive more. Of course they did. It scattered through the vineyard like wildfire. The one hour guys got a denarius. And by the time it got up to the guys who'd been there since six in the morning, no doubt they were they were getting ready to take their wives out to whatever Ruth's Chris was then. It's going to be a good day, babe. I got a bonus at work. This guy hired me at five this morning and I worked all day for him. He hired people at five in the afternoon and paid him a denarius. I mean, they can already feel it. It's going to be good, except when they get there. They only get a denarius. See the shaking heads. This is unjust. Verse 11, and on receiving it, the men grumbled at the master of the house. And their grumbling seems worthy to us. It's only one hour for these workers who got a denarius and we worked all day and we were in the scorching heat, which we get right now. We're understanding this. We were out there. There's no OSHA. Okay, there's no. There's no regulations. We just were working in the scorching sun. And they complain. But the master did not measure out the payment based upon time spent in his field or upon the volume of grapes that were harvested. The master in this story has some other way that he's evaluating how he gives out the reward for labor. There's something else going on. This master doesn't make sense culturally. Brothers who are masters, this is not a good business plan. You could not keep up with this for the long haul. And Jesus never intends to give business wisdom through this parable. This man doesn't make sense. He doesn't fit within the culture. He doesn't do anything but shock the people who are hearing the story. And that's exactly what Jesus intends. Because Jesus is using this make-believe, true-to-life, but shocking twist in a story to clarify The paradox that he's declared in verse number 30 of chapter 19. So with the disciples now, no doubt they're hanging on his words. Jesus turns the corner to drive home the point that sovereign grace is the great equalizer of rewarding within the kingdom. How will rewards be doled out? Well, just like a master who has guys who work 12 hours and guys who work one hour and he doles them out the same payment. This flies in the face of normal reasoning, and it sets up for us the conclusion of the parable and the point. So the point is the final section that we'll study. And this really begins in verse number 13, as the master speaks back to the grumbling, longest working individuals from his vineyard. Notice that the master calls the individual who's grumbling friend. I'm sure that that uh, within the story, if this were really happening, the mention of being my friend would not be the first title that this individual would want to be sharing with the master at this point. 
But he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Don't miss this. There's no injustice in what I'm doing. What I'm doing is perfectly just. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So the first principle that comes from this point that builds this concept of sovereign grace being the equalizer of the kingdom is that the master gives according to what is just. He has done the right thing. Verse number 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or you begrudge or do you begrudge my generosity? So, first of all, what is right has taken place. Secondly, what has been sovereign has taken place. And thirdly, the generosity reveals what has been gracious has taken place. So righteous, sovereign grace is what is marking this master who is living counterculturally within this parable. And Jesus is using that parable, that master, these individuals working laborers in his field to make clear the paradox of the the kingdom citizens reward. First, last, last, first. Because within the kingdom, sovereign grace is the great equalizer. You see, there will be no one within the kingdom who is there by right. There is no one who will be rewarded within the kingdom because they have earned it. Everyone who is there is there because someone else earned it in their place. And all of the reward will point back to the gracious provision that's been made on the part of God toward them as sinners. John Carson says this, the parable begins with typical scene and introduces atypical elements to surprise the reader and make a powerful point. And then he quotes another commentator, Huffman, who says, Jesus deliberately and cleverly led the listeners along by degrees until they understood that if God's generosity was to be represented by a man, such a man would be different from any man they had ever encountered. So every day laborer in the crowd Every master within the crowd is equally surprised that they are learning of this individual because they've never met anybody like this. This guy doesn't exist in the world because this guy is a make-believe story to highlight and to clarify and to unfold the reality that in the kingdom and within the rewarding of the kingdom, sovereign grace is the equalizer. The human master in the make-believe story, clarifies the kingdom paradox that we find in verse number 30 and repeated, flipped around in verse number 16. Carson goes on to say, God's grace makes some who are last first. The point of the parable is not wrapped up in the kingdom receiving the same reward, but that the kingdom rewards depend on God's sovereign grace. So it's not that what we do for Christ here has no bearing on what happens in eternity. You all have no doubt been aware of or revolved around or have in your home some kind of statement that says what happens here lasts. What we do for Christ is what counts. And certainly Paul would communicate to us and Christ would communicate to us that rewarding will take place and it will be based upon activity. But understand this rewarding within the kingdom will not be based. Will not be based upon performance that earns the reward. And it will not be equal in the sense of every individual getting the same thing apart from 
every individual receiving grace. So the grand song of heaven will be grace. Grace. There will be no walking about heaven with stripes on our arms. And we will notice each other and be like, did you see? I know. I know. There was a mistake and they got my rank wrong and then they they bumped me up this last week. It's been really special. It was because of that part of my life when I was this age, when I did these certain things. That's what happened. No, the theme of heaven, the theme of the kingdom will be grace. It equalizes. We are all there. And even those who will receive greater reward than others will be there based on grace. Rewarded upon grace. Rewarded by grace. Those who are last are first. Those who are first will be last. And God's gracious rewards will neutralize all of the attendees in the kingdom of heaven. God's gracious rewards in heaven are not based upon greatness here on earth. It's not based on firstness here. And for many of his people, their experience will be anything but firstness here. For many of you. For many of us, it will be insignificance. It will be an unnoticed life. It will be living without any regard from the world. When we die, there will not be a blurb on Fox News. That we've passed away. There will not be airplanes traveling in from around the world with dignitaries. To walk past the casket with our picture on it. We will not be first. And within our culture. Because of our stand for Christ. We will be viewed as last. But within the kingdom. God's grace will reverse all of this. And he delights in the faithfulness of his people. Sovereign grace is the banner over our lives. And it will be the great equalizer of the kingdom. John MacArthur helps clarify this reality in his section on this particular passage in his commentaries. He says that as sin equalizes everyone outside of Christ, so grace equalizes everyone who is in Christ. So the great theme of hell will be sin. All there are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Even their righteousness is filthy rags. So sin will be the banner. Some being punished more severely than others, but all being punished with sin as the label of their lives. And within the kingdom, the grand label and theme of the kingdom will be grace. It'll be grace. Some will receive more in comparison to others, but it will be all stamped with grace. All because of Christ, all through Christ, all for Christ. And any reward that is given will be placed before Christ. It will be laid before Him and we will sing, worthy is the Lamb to receive praise. Not worthy am I to receive praise. Because the rewards of the kingdom, though you are last now and though you will be first then, you will receive rewards because of grace. Sovereign grace. Sovereign in that the authority of heaven will dole it out. Grace in that you have not merited it on your own. No righteousness of your own doing has earned you God's favor. But Christ's righteousness in your place. So sovereign grace is the great equalizer of the kingdom. Now that should alleviate for us some certain sinful responses to one another, even within the body of Christ. If sovereign grace is the great banner of our lives and God's work on our behalf through Christ is, is the, the theme that we put on the back of our jersey, 
sovereign grace through Christ is, is the banner of our lives, then this would kill jealousy and covetousness within the body of Christ. Right? This would kill it. If we were consumed with this, that everything that I've received and all the blessings and the gifting and even the, the temporal rewards that might come to me through service for Christ, they're all of grace. It's all more than I deserve. Then which person concerned with grace and consumed with the greatness of God in loving them is looking around the room and saying, yeah, but I don't have what they have. If we have a proper perspective of ourselves as sinners under the condemnation of God, and if we have then a proper perspective of Christ who removes that condemnation, providing us righteousness and forgiveness and covering at the cross and eternal life through the empty tomb, then we do nothing but glory in Christ. We boast in Christ. It's not about us. And if it's not about us, then it's not about getting for us something we don't have. It eliminates or helps battle for us the fight with jealousy and covetousness even within the kingdom of heaven now. Lastness will be firstness in the kingdom of heaven. All of grace, not because of prominence. Second thing that happens because of this principle and the sovereign grace that equalizes the kingdom, it first battles against jealousy and covetousness on our parts with each other. But secondly, it helps establish for us the grid through which we see life. We're back to the beginning. At what perspective will we look at each other? How will we view greatness in relation to Christ? I mean, which individuals will we say, this is a great man or woman for Christ? Will it be because of flash and prominence? Will it be because of popularity? Will it be because of any number of human externals? Is that how we will go about evaluating greatness for the kingdom? If so, then we have rejected and left the very, the very parable that should clarify for us the perspective that Jesus brings. Faithfulness, dependence upon grace, exalting in Jesus Christ. These are the characters of greatness within the kingdom. So within the body of Christ, we should celebrate those who are faithful, who pursue the glory of Christ, who are not exalting themselves, who do not live for their own glory, but live for the glory of their Savior. Because this will be the mark of the kingdom rewards. It will be grace for those who are faithful in their adoration and affection and therefore in their service for Christ. So a few thoughts by way of implication. In conclusion this morning, how do we respond to Jesus clarifying the first, last, last, first principle with this parable. Well, we've just said it, but faithfulness is the delight of the king for his kingdom citizens. See, I want to be great for God. I want to be great for God because I want God to be greatly seen through me. That's a worthy ambition. I want Jesus Christ to be put on display. I want to have maximum impact for Jesus Christ. Good. Be faithful. Be faithful. Obey your Christ, walk with your Christ, worship your Christ, serve your Christ, serve his people, love his people, minister in his name, pray in his name, walk in his name, work in his name, submit to your husband in his name, love your wife in his name. Faithfulness, one foot in front of the other one.
Everything within us says, if I'm going to be great for the kingdom, if I'm going to be great for Christ, that means fame. That means big things. I'm going to be first. Christ says, it's not the standard. It's not how I evaluate greatness. Faithfulness is the delight of the king in his kingdom citizens. Faithfully serving Christ as nobodies. Recognizing that in Christ, we have all of the riches of heaven as our eternal inheritance. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Secondly, understand as we go, not just his faithfulness being the delight of the king, but Christ's gracious work makes this rewarding even possible. I mean, we should be shocked that we're even reading about being rewarded within the kingdom. Right? We probably don't say it enough, but we should not be here this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be in hell today. We should be suffering right now an eternal, just, holy punishment from God. Burning in an eternal fire that has no quenching. Where the burning never ends, that's the right place for us. This is not fair. This is grace. And the only means of this grace ever getting to us is the king himself. Because the king is also the priest. And the priest has made the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Both priest and lamb slaughtered for us. So that we might be the recipients of the rewards of the kingdom. Life, righteousness, blessing and joy. Presence of the Spirit, the hope of the coming of Christ, the removal of the guilt of sin, the clarity of conscience, the anticipation of heaven. These are all because the King, the King has been gracious to us. So let's not get into the rewards and and be wrestling around in the rewards and trying to figure out how much am I going to get and how much have I done? Wow, I, I mean, I left my house. I mean, surely, Peter says, this is going to be good. Let us beware in finishing this study this morning that we finish aware of the grace of Christ. If it were not for Christ who obeyed God's law, any righteousness on our parts is filth. And with the righteousness of Christ substituted in our place, we can echo with the Apostle Paul what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he gloried in the resurrection realities that were his in Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace. All of grace through Christ to us. So, sovereign grace. The king's grace. Heaven's grace. Is the great theme. It's the equalizer of the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last. The last will be first. Just like a master who hires at all different times and pays out righteously his payment. Obviously not based on time and not based on fruitfulness, but based upon the faithful labor that was put in. These are the words of God to us. Let's ask God to help us to obey. Father, thank you for this word from from you, from your mind to ours to help shape us and mold us, to help us perceive one another with with grace over our heads 
to exalt in any exaltation of one another for the sake of Christ. Any prominence for Christ being a, a, a gift of grace, not something to be jealous for or covetous after, but something to glory in and to boast in because it is the cross that is accomplishing and it is the spirit who is at work. Thank you for the perspective that this provides for us in how we view greatness, even how we pursue greatness for the kingdom. May we pursue it with this perspective squarely in front of us. That it is faithfulness. It is not fame that you seek and delight in in your children. And it is not earned, but in response to what has already been earned out of gratitude and affection that our service receives your smile and your reward in the coming kingdom. And finally, thank you for Christ, who is both the rewarder of the kingdom and the gracious reward of the kingdom. For it is through him that we have entrance into your presence and we will enjoy your presence forever. Father, teach us to make much of Christ. May our boast be Christ. May he be exalted. May we talk of him and think of him as he's revealed in your word. May we live lives that are consumed with gratitude for his gracious work, motivated by the grace that you've extended to us through him in the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like you so that we can make you famous here, not for our glory, not to be first, but to embrace being last for the extension of your kingdom. Only you could do this in us. We would never pursue it on our own. And so even as we ask, we give thanks that Christ has made way for this gracious provision. And so we pray these things and commit ourselves to obedience to your word in the name of Christ. Amen.